question is, what kind of country do you want to live in? Well, a fair country, a decent country, a cohesive country, a clean, orderly, stable country that respects itself, a country that actually cares about families, the building block of everything. Americanism, not globalism, will be our credo. It's called a nationalist. And I say, really, we're not supposed to use that word. You know what I am? I'm a nationalist. From now on, it's going to be America first, okay? America first. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Americanism. My name is Daniel Schmidt. I'm the co-host of this podcast, joined, as always, with Patriot Politics. How's it going, man? It's going well. Glad to have you. And today we have a very special episode because I am joined with Ryan James Gradusky. Ryan James Gradusky is a political consultant and writer with uh, whose work has been featured in multiple publications such as the Washington Examiner, the American Conservative Magazine, uh, The Week, Human Events, The Daily Caller, and Townhall.com. And he is the author of the best-selling book that was released back in June called They're Not Listening, How the Elites Created the National Populist Revolution. So very interesting topics. Of course, if you've been listening to the show, you know this is exactly how, you know, the stuff we want to talk about. So, Ryan, thanks so much for coming on. How's it going? Thank you for having me. So, you know, I want to begin by just talking about your book, because I think a lot of our a lot of our listeners, we, we, we dig this sort of stuff. You know, we've read books like Death of the West by Pat Buchanan, you know, Ship of Fools by Tucker Carlson. So, of course, your book falls, you know, along those lines. So could you just kind of give maybe a quick synopsis about your book, the thesis guiding it and sort of what are your conclusions and what is the guiding message behind your book? Right. So. Right after the election of 2016, um, there was a big narrative within the media that uh, it was kind of a fluke election that Trump really shouldn't have been elected and that it was just a bunch of angry old white people in dying towns in the Rust Belt. And it was um, it, it was it was to believe in what he, his message was, was really um, not coherent with what the world believes in. Well, then I did some research writing an article for American Conservative magazine, and I just spotted trends throughout the entire globe going back 20 years where it was the case in Hungary, in Chile, in Colombia, in Angola, in Australia, in Israel, in Pakistan, in India. All these major Western and non-Western nations were having this um, backlash against globalism, against neoliberalism. And there were similar trends among people who don't share a common language, a common culture, common race, common religion. It is just um, it is just the natural inhibition of human nature to sit there and want to protect your country, flag, and people. And uh, that is really the outgrowth of and the response to neoliberalism. And the people most responsible for the creation of this backlash are neoliberals. Um, it is people like Barack Obama, people like George W. Bush, like Hillary Clinton, like Henry Kissinger, uh, Kissinger like, um, uh, you know, that ilk like Xi Jinping, um, that ilk that hated Donald Trump the most, hated Brexit, hated um, Modi and 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 um, Bolsonaro and Le Pen and Salvini um, and the Law and Justice Party and Viktor Orban, people who hated them the most are the ones who created them. Um, and there was no, no introspection after the election to say, how did I contribute to this? It was, let's blame this on Russia, let's blame this on the conspiracy theories. Um, and the establishment sadly, has still not had this 
introspection moment where they sit there and say, how did I contribute to the rise of national populism? Yeah, I feel like it's a common theme where there's a deflection of blame uh, among the elites. Um, we even see, you know, it's not really a ruling class because they don't ascribe the responsibility of, of being rulers to themselves. They deflect this blame and often supplement it with these social justice causes, which somehow um, is is permissible uh, amidst this, this ever-liberalized culture. Um, but, you know, neo- neoliberalism by design works to disenfranchise the common man. You know, the common man isn't this this cosmopolitan Casanova that's always mobile and, and you know, is, is evil, easily able to adapt um, under an all-encompassing regime. The common man has things in his life that he cherishes and loves, and he wants to protect those things and pass them, you know, on to his posterity and continue that that trend. Yeah. So, you know, along those lines, I think like a basic question should be asked, Ryan, is, you know, this neoliberalism, you know, where did it like where did it come from? Because, you know, for nationalism has kind of been the thing for hundreds of years in world history. But yet in the 20th century, neoliberalism, you know, came and it seemingly dominated politics from that point forward. So I guess where did this neoliberalism like philosophy come from? What birthed it? Well, there was always, I mean, as far, dating back a long time, there have been international, uh, you know, movements of peoples and international and beliefs of internationalism dating back to when monarchies used to have arranged marriages to sit there and, and bring peace to each other and, and do uh, special agreements. But the modern neoliberal um, movement kind of came right after the Cold War ended. Um, there was this idea that human history had come to an end. It was the Francis Fukuyama belief that it was the end of history. And it really was their belief. And they believed that they could, that human nature, it's a very liberal and, you know, classically liberal idea is that, or maybe not classically liberal, just modern liberal, but it's liberal idea that human nature is amendable to the times and to the people. So... Um, they believe, and I, Thomas Friedman wrote this in one of his books, it's, it's cited in my book, that he believed free trade would make you know, friends out of enemies and bring together old barriers and change old beliefs. Like the idea, it was basically like a cheap refrigerator was as valuable as Jesus Christ on the cross. It would give you salvation. So it was this insane belief that they went wild with. And they also believed they could change human nature either through war um, as was the case in Iraq and Afghanistan, they could make Jeffersonian demo- democracies in the Middle East, or um, in or through trade with China. Um, and they thought that the China would be more Western and more democratic if they just opened up to trade. Um, and they had this kind of belief when it comes to America and to the West, especially the West, of some kind of special dirt that if someone came to this country, they are as American the day they walk on as somebody who's been here for thirteen generations. As if, you know, an El Salvadorian who came across the Rio Grande is as American as a 13th generation Wisconsin dairy farmer. That's just not true. Like, they don't have the same language, values, beliefs, uh, heroes. There's nothing that makes them countrymen besides the fact that they're in the same border. Um, and it takes a long time for people to have those same values. And it's, it's an underappreciated value. But that didn't necessarily just come from the left who sat there and said they should have no values, no common values. It came from the right. It came from the Frank Luntz's of the world and the George W. Bushes of the world and the Jeb Bushes of the world who sat there and, Mar- and the Paul Ryans of the world who kind of have this, um, like, it's, it's 
it's I don't even I can't even describe it. It's a borderline mental disease where they have to sit there and, and, and look at people yep. and not value them as individuals, but as whole groups. It is a very identity politics way of looking at people. We have a growth in this country and it's not a majority, obviously, but there is a portion of this country that, we, that practices genital mutilation. It never was. We never had that 50. 50 years ago, but we've created balkanizations on this country that are more like Somalia than they are like, you know, Minnesota. And when you sit there and bring it out in mass in the hundreds of thousands or in the millions, sit there and say, I can't believe this happened. Well, you know, I can't believe you were electrocuted by you sticking a wet fork in an outlet, but you did because it's what was going to happen. So mm -hmm. um, I think that that is really where the natural evolution kind of grew. Um, when it came for neoliberalism, it was just they had this belief that they could suspend what had been practiced in human nature. Um, you know, I have a very Hobbesian worldview of how the world is, but I know I'm an exception to it. But they were just Rousseauian on a level that, I, like, is borderline fanatical. And, of course, you know, chaos ensued because of it. And people sat there and said, well, this is not going to happen. I'm not going to allow this. So I'll elect a billionaire who talks about himself and his hands and how orange he is and how rich he is and this absurd figure because at least he's all the people who have destroyed my life or have made my life much, much, much harder. And I think that even if Trump loses, the fact that he got 10 million more votes than he did last time, they said, oh, this is, you know, 63 million votes. This is absolutely the highest amount he could have gotten. And then, you know, rolls around and got between 10 and 11 million more four years later. I think that that shows that there is really no end to this. And that's with a figure like Donald Trump, who is a very hard pill for a lot of people swallow and i think it all stems back to this liberal idea of anti-metaphysics rejecting anything that is not empirically falsifiable in 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 pursuit of this idealistic um world that's that's all cohesive and tranquil where everyone lives together as one one uh, people and that that's just you know it's it's, it's right. idealistic it's it's yeah well the ment mentality of the people in the neoliberals is well, you know, not all El Salvadorians are, are members of the cartel and not all Muslims practice general mutilation. Well, what are you talking about? Not everyone on my block will steal my mother's jewelry, but I don't open the door and say, let's have at it. First one who gets it, you know, is the winner. Mm -hmm. You sit there and you, you, exactly. you, you, you sit there and say, what do I need? And the most important question is not what is in the interest of a refugee or of an immigrant. Of course, their interest is to come to the United States. What's in the best interest of Americans? And that has mm -hmm. been completely forgotten about. And that was the 2016 campaign and what a fabulous campaign it was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think you touched on so many things, so I definitely cannot get to all of it. But I think when I look at all this, I think the, the biggest irony of it all is, you know, Republicans, the typical Republican establishment, they are in essence committing political suicide by being in favor of mass immigrants, because I know you're well informed on the voting patterns of demographics. Immigrants do not vote for Republican. That is just a clear and simple thing. I, that numbers are astronomically high for Democrats. And so I look at this and Republicans, you know, are they aware that, you know, they're essentially ensuring their demise in 50 to 100 years? You know, I mean, it, it really makes you wonder. I mean, you look at this election and, you know, there's talks on whether or not it was rigged or not. I think those are fair discussion. But you look at some of the poll numbers and Trump was underperforming among white college voters and white non-educated non voters. And that is the you know, and that is the essence of the GOP. And, you know, it makes you wonder, do the Republicans, you know, the establishment, are they aware that in these policies they're committing political suicide? Right. Well, you know, my friend Pedro Gonzalez had an interesting point in his article on in American Greatness that 
the right would rather celebrate Trump losing with a more diverse coalition than winning on the backs of the non-college educated whites. Because mm. it's not sexy to be carried by non-college educated whites. And that's what's happening right now. And listen, tr- credit goes to, you know, to the campaign. They did fantastic outreach to minority communities. Mm-hmm. Um, they did fantastic outreach to, um, to Hispanics, especially in, in Texas and in Florida. And in and even in Southern California, it, it was it was it was brilliant. However, that does not win you a presidency. Getting 34, 35, 32 percent Hispanic vote does not win you a presidency. And I've explained it like this, and I'm not making a joke when I say it. But so to make a Republican president is like making a cake. The non-college educated white vote is the batter. The college educated white vote is the cream filling. The Hispanic vote is the frosting and the black vote is the cherry on top. (laughs) Who gives a shit if you have nine cherries on tops when you have no, there's no batter. Mm -hmm. That is what, that is what Jared Kushner built the campaign model out of Mm -hmm. and where Trump did perform badly. And this was uniform across the entire spectrum. And it's not just in one state or so he can't blame Dominion voting. He did worse in Western North Carolina. He did worse in Northwest uh, Georgia, uh, Northwest Georgia, worse in West Virginia, worse in West, Western North Carolina, worse in Western Virginia, and worse in Central Pennsylvania and, and in parts of upstate New York. All those areas that went swung so heavily for him, you know, went back a little bit. And I, it's not just the fact that he didn't, uh, you know, I guess maybe campaign overly campaign for them, but. He did have a special, and I, you know, it is what it is, but he did have a special, oh, here's one name for the blacks, here's one name for the Hispanics, here's, you know, I'm so pro-gay, here's my outreach to, to this mm-hmm. organization, to, to, you know, to Jews, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. There was no public recognition right. for working whites in America. Mm-hmm. And these are the people who feel truly voices. They are mocked in the media, they are degraded by Hollywood, they are abandoned by the Democratic Party. A lot of their unions push them to vote for Democrats, but that's about it. Mm-hmm. But in all these communities, they are told constantly, you are worthless. Mm-hmm. And it was his opportunity to engage them. And had only he gotten 2% more or 1% more, actually, probably like one one and a half to 2% more of the non-college get right vote, he would have won. Mm, yeah. And it, a part of his campaign problem was, and I brought, and I... You know, for a living, I'm a consultant. I do this for a living. I brought Brad Parscale a document in 2017. I said, here's where the non-college educated live. You need to register 10% of the 47 million who are not registered, do not vote, and you will smooth to re-election. If you have a smooth path to re-election, most are in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Virginia, New Hampshire, Iowa, and Ohio. Um, but there's a lot in Arizona, and there's a lot in North Carolina, and a lot in Georgia. You just got to sit there fine them register them, engage with them and make sure they vote and you have, you'll have no problem and uh, you know i was basically told by the campaign there's no money in registering voters and so instead they spent three years chasing phantom hispanics in new mexico who were going to flip the state for trump um when they lost the million dollar bill that was on the floor that they could have picked up so a quick, a quick question from that real quick. Uh, so these white voters who voted for Trump at 16 didn't vote for him this election. Do you think they voted for Biden or did they just not vote at all? Here's the thing. Most did still vote for Trump. So let's take Wisconsin, for example, right? In the in the 23 uh, or 24 counties it was, I wrote an article about this. Whatever the number was, I think it was 24, but it mm-hmm. might be I might be off. It's in the article from the American conservative. Mm-hmm. In the 24 counties that Trump flipped from Obama Trump in 2016, Trump did better in 23 of them. He improved in those white working class counties and turnout was almost 95%. He could not have 
really gotten many out of these 23 counties that he misses a state that um, that he only lost by 18,000 votes or something like that. Um, the problem was, even though the population of these counties had increased over the course of four years, the number of registered voters decreased by 8,000. There was 8,000 fewer <laughs> voters. They weren't registered mm-hmm. to vote. That is problematic. And there was no machine operation on the ground. So of the available voters, the GOTV operation, the Wisconsin Republican Party, the ground game, they did a great, great job doing what they could. Um, when it came to registering voters, which is a multi-year operation that you need to do, you can look at what Stacey Abrams is doing to a point in Georgia. She's not doing it as well as she says she is, but she's doing a good job. It's a multi multi-year operation and it takes a lot of money and a lot of time to try to engage register and keep these voters animated and there's tens of millions of them there was no process whatsoever because the the jared kushner truly believed a poll came and said you know you're only getting 10 percent of the black vote or 11 percent of the black vote he would sit there and say you're asking the wrong black people so every time there's a bad poll he would just sit there and blame the pollster when in fact was there was just a cap there was a ceiling on what he could get from certain demographies and the one that was so important and the most important and they should have spent four years engaging nonstop. they did nothing or very little rather i want to say nothing but they did very little yeah they got like complacent as as the democrats do with the with the minority vote yeah yeah they take them as for granted as as the black as democrats take the black vote usually and think about it like this you know as depressed as we all are it is a hundred thousand voters and that are basically deciding this election but, but maybe 150,000 voters in pennsylvania wisconsin mm. georgia arizona and nevada this wasn't a landslide this is 150,000 people um you know had COVID never happened had there been efficient lawyers on the ground in some of these states where there wasn't because of the campaign and had um you know had poll watchers been able to sit there and make sure that they weren't throwing out ballots or, or messing with ballots in, in some districts who knows i think i think had there been no COVID, Trump would have absolutely won. I, I think this this slavish obsession with, you know, diversity comprising the, the the voting base of the GOP is this personifies this adherence to abstract principles um, that the GOP, you know, has resorted to the same tactics for years and years. We acknowledge we're losing it. We resort to the same tactics. You know, Democrats, the real racists. It's it's an insatiable game of political hot potato that isn't propelling us, you know, over the edge. If anything, it's just creating, uh, you know, stagflation. Well, it's very important to reach out to minorities. I'm not saying that he shouldn't have done any outreach. It, that's not what I, I, I don't mean to sit there and say that. And of the minority outreach that they did, they were very, very successful. You know, Hispanic support in Texas and Florida for Trump was more enthusiastic than some of the white support. However, that is not enough. You cannot throw out, the, you know, your main ingredient, putting into the cake analogy, you can't throw out your main ingredient because you want to have more cherries on top of the cake to make it look prettier. It's just not going to taste right. And you can't make you like you can't make a, a cake like that. You can't make a Republican president like that. And it was really the college educated world that swung very heavily against him. And even though he made inroads in Philadelphia, he made inroads in Detroit, he made inroads in, 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 in most major cities where he there was just not enough of a voter pool. There was never going to be enough of a voter pool to counter the college educated white suburban vote. The only group that was large enough to counter that vote was the non-college educated white vote. And that's the vote that should have been for four years engaged with, registered, uh, you know, supported constantly and talked to constantly. And it was like they talked around them. 
you know, they sit there and mention all these other things like, oh, you're, you're concerned about that. So I'm addressing your needs. No, talk specifically to them. And I think the bigger problem with Trump and, you know, this is this is this is a problem with the Republicans and most politicians, not just on the right, but on the left as well, is there was no national vision. And I've talked about this quite some quite quite a bit in a lot of interviews and to elected officials. And I say this to all the time to them. I spoke to a Congress, two congresspeople recently. I want you to tell me what America will look like in 10 years, but I don't use, want you to use the words freedom, liberty, or free market to describe it. Mm. I want you to describe it in a way that I can actually picture it, because that's how AOC describes it. And I can understand her vision, even though I don't disagree with it. Mm-hmm. So if you want to bring manufacturing back to America from China, which is something I fully endorse and support, unless you get the government involved in the specific allocation of that manufacturing, it's going to go to the Southwest because they have newer infrastructure, they have younger population, and, and most of the states, except for California, have, have better, and New Mexico have better tax breaks. Um, if you wanted to go to the people that voted for you in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Southern Illinois, Indiana, wherever, uh, Ohio, you have to sit there and get the government involved. And they don't have, they just don't have the help needed to sit there and make sure these places like Mahoning County, Ohio, or Youngstown, Pennsylvania, are benefiting from any of this stuff. You need actual trillion-dollar investment into these regions that are being depressed and left behind. And unless that doesn't come from a top-up vision mm-hmm. of how you want to see the country, and Trump's administration did not have that vision, um, it's never going to happen. So that's, I think, really where part of the problem was. Mm. So what you're saying is like, you know, this sort of nationalist image, you know, combining maybe some paleoconservatism in there. So, you know, given what happened in this election, I guess the big question is, do you think the Republican Party is going to adapt and pursue that image, like you said? Or do you think they're going to return to their, you know, fiscal conservatism, you know, the Dan Crenshaw's, the Nikki Haley's, you know, that sort of branch of conservatism? What's like the most realistic, you know, path that they'll take? Um, I think that fiscal conservatism, I think that fiscal conservatism is going to be an important part of the Republican Party during the Biden administration, simply because when they're out of power, they sit there and they care tremendously about budgets and deficits. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't bother me tremendously because the deficit is very, very large, although it's not my biggest concern in the world. I think that, you know, there are certain people who may not understand. There's two. I'll say it this way. There are two ways people understand nationalism and populism. They either gut level, like Trump did, who don't always articulate it well, but the fire's in the belly and you feel it. Mm-hmm. it you know, they love America like someone would love their wife. You don't necessarily have a reason why you love your wife. You just love your wife because she's your wife. You love your country and its people because it's your country and its people. And then there are those who are trying to understand it on a learned level. Mm-hmm. There are a lot more people from what I've observed on the outside and speaking to them who are trying to understand on a learned level than understand on a gut level. Um, that's not necessarily bad as long as they can make their way to the right place. I think probably the most interesting person to look at right now is going to be the Jim is Jim Banks, Congressman Jim Banks. Jim read my book, um, and we've had many conversations about national populism and um, trying. He's definitely somebody who is intellectual enough to want to have conversations about broader ideas and not shut out any ideas. Hmm. So, um, and he's also came out and sat there and said, we can't support amnesty um, and all the rest of it. So I think that, um, I think that he's somebody to be looking forward to. Yeah, I mean, at, at this point, there really has to be a, a galvanizing force um, from within. I mean, you see a lot of movements, uh, a lot of people within the, 
the national populist movement calling for a new America first party. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a stretch. I, I don't think that's really a viable alternative at the moment. Um, and I, I think we do really need to try to implement these ideas uh, from within and, and allow them to be endorsed by these, by these big names in Congress. The good thing is if you want these ideas to be implemented, it doesn't just have to be at the congressional level. Mm-hmm. Every state, Oklahoma is the only state right now that does this, every state could have a tax on remittances. It could be a state policy, it doesn't have to be a federal policy. Every state could be or a curriculum and education that's pro-American history and a patriotic education. There are things that could happen at the state and local level. Every city council or mayor could endorse where if we're going to buy public. I just went to Oklahoma City, beautiful city, some of the ugliest art I've ever seen before in my life. I wanted to throw up. Every single place like that could sit there and say, we want classical Greek and Roman art or, or something, that does, something that sits there and tells a story of Western civilization. You can move the ball forward on a local level. You can move it locally and move it forward mm-hmm. every little step of the way. There's more ideas to come. It's just about doing that. Yeah, I think I think that message is basically the crux of why uh, Patriot and I started this podcast. We're both in high school, but our message is basically, you know, you don't have to be in, in elected office to, you know, enact change. You know, you can do small things like you said. You can start, you know, a podcast. You can start a YouTube show, whatever it be, and that will eventually, hopefully, lead to something. I guess, you know, my final question, or you know, I don't know if we want to continue, but one of my questions is, you know, to accomplish this, this is going to have to undo, you know, decades of, you know, sort of Reaganism talking points that, you know, amnesty is okay because, you know, they might vote Republican, you know, Hispanics are naturally conservative, you know, all these sort of talking points that aren't really true, but are part of this sort of token conservatism. You know, it's going to be hard to undo some of that, especially among the boomers, you know, they're very, they're kind of the embodiment of that. How would you suggest, you know, if you're say you're talk say you know we sort of represent this new America first conservatism, say we're talking to a you know a traditional conservative, what are some of the topics that could really you know bridge the gap that could unite the new conservatism with the sort of old Reagan conservatism? Because there are some differences, but there definitely are some similarities as well. Don't pretend you're Donald Trump. Don't do a Trump shtick where you can say outlandishly offensive things and assume you'll get away with it like he got away with it because he is a special person a special personality mm-hmm. trump was in trouble in some of the polls is because he refused to sit there and conform in some of his language and some of his tweets and some other stuff you should sit there and speak professionally if you want a professional job i truly believe that um the second thing is is that on on news on issue basis you should speak to them on a level that everyone can understand, like the level of, do you want someone coming inside your house that you don't know? Mm-hmm. What is good for the least among us, in a Christian sense of the word? Is it good for a black child to be sitting there in a school that is overcrowded because we have brought in a million new immigrants per year? Speak to them on a level that is relatable as best as possible. And then, yeah, if you disagree with some places you know, here or there, that's fine. But always remember, I mean, this is if you're especially if you're campaigning for a job. If you're campaigning for a school board, don't start talking about bringing troops from around the world. Sit there and talk about the fact that, you know, once again, bring up schools for a second. But talk about the fact that going into grammar school, children are taught to hate their country, its history, and, and you can bridge the gap. And then once you're in that elective office, move the needle. Sit there and change the, change the rhetoric once you're there. Because once you're there, they'll probably love you anyway. So long as you don't sit there and do something, you know, mm-hmm. commit fraud or abuse a puppy. But we'll sit there and they'll learn to love you and you can sit there and move the needle. That's what Trump did. Trump sat there. He conceded a lot to the establishment Republicans, but 
you know, he definitely moved the ball in such a way that you have the head of the new head of the National Study Committee talking about reducing legal levels of immigration. Mm -hmm. That would not have happened without him five years ago. Um, there's a real constituency of the right that wants to bring all the troops home. That wouldn't have happened five years ago. This is a fundamentally different party. Um, but you as a local person, you as a local level, especially you want to run for a local office in the near future and the far future, that's how you do it. And the most important thing is don't believe you are Trump. You can only he could get away with certain things if he did. And I think one thing Trump did was uh, kind of wake conservatives from their dormancy, uh, from this this adherence to principles, as as I previously cited. You know, these these ideas of small government, these ideas of you know freedom, freedom, you know, freedom uh, as it pertains to what uh, Trump really, you know, he let the elephant out of the cage and and you know exposed the 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 ineptitude of the the, the conservative movement at at that point. And, you know, he set a new course for the, yes, but, the future of the GOP. Yes, but you have to understand certain of those logos are going to stick because it's it's as built into some of their brains and it's wired to some of their brains as their faith is. It's just, it's not, you're never going to win, you know, people by sitting there and having an anti-word, bashing of the word liberty. It's just not going to help. Mm -hmm. But like my dad, typical Fox News viewing Republican, watches Fox every day, all day long, sat there and said to me, said, I hope that Republicans realize what Trump showed them, that the American economy is the best weapon we have, and we should use it to deny people that don't consent to our way of life or to our beliefs, and we should deny them the American economy. He would never have that opinion before mm -hmm. Trump, ever. He's mm -hmm. not saying it in the words that I'm saying it in. And I could learn to adapt to his language to meet my goals. And that's maybe how you should speak to them. We all know those, like the boomer Republicans. We all know what they said. And they love, 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 most of them love Donald Trump. You could sit there and you can make inroads with them on certain things um, and just avoid the conflict in other areas. Listen, we're not going to convert everybody, but that's okay. If you sit there and make sure that they're okay with your candidates or you as a candidate or whatnot, um, that is how you move the needle for the people that are already around. And then for younger people, it's about red-pilling them. And the fact that most of the things that they hear either in pop culture or on Facebook or TikTok or Instagram is a lot of bullshit. Yeah, I think Zoomers and the winners are saying Thank you, Ryan. I rock. You, you can follow, follow me on Twitter at Ryan Gerdusky on Facebook. If anyone uses Facebook anymore, which I hardly do, it's Ryan James Gerdusky. <laughs> and you can get my uh, my Amazon. My book is on Amazon. It's at uh, Barnes and Nobles, uh, Target, wherever. It's called They're Not Listening, How the Elites Created the National Populist Revolution. Well, great. Thank you. We'll definitely have all your information in the show notes below, as well as in the description of the YouTube video if you're watching there. But thank you for tuning in to this episode of Americanism. Thank you for Ryan for tuning in, and we'll see you guys in the next episode. Take care.